Tech Fighter Worldwide. It's the High Tech Podcast in plain English with an hour's worth of news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the commercials, the station breaks, the sports, and most of the jingles. Podcast number 479 for the 7th of February, 2016. This week, a new feature in Adobe Lightroom that I mentioned last week is every bit as exciting as I thought it might be. Words and pictures follow. Network-attached storage is coming to homes and offices, and a new network-attached storage box from Synology comes with impressive specifications. In short circuits, Seagate is looking at a class-action lawsuit resulting from a high percentage of failed 3-terabyte drives. Microsoft wants you to have Windows 10 for free and doesn't want to take no for an answer. And Internet data privacy gets a scorecard with a low grade. In spare parts, only on the website, slow crooks down and you might be able to keep them out of your computer and IBM plans to acquire Columbus-based resource Amarati. Last week, I mentioned a new feature that came with the latest version of Adobe Photoshop Lightroom. At the time, I hadn't had time to work with it. Now I have, and it's every bit as useful as I thought it would be. Panoramic views are some of the most dramatic images a photographer can create because they're extremely wide, or extremely tall. And despite the advances in phone-based cameras, panoramas are still better when they're created with a digital SLR. But they were hard to create. Note my use of the past tense there. The images I used for the panorama you'll see on this week's TechBiter Worldwide website comprised a dozen pictures made at the wilds last summer. They didn't use a tripod, and no matter how steady your hand, it's all but impossible to create a perfectly aligned series of photos. Lightroom can match objects in multiple images to create the panorama, but the result will often be significant areas with no pixels at the top and bottom. You'll see them in the images on the TechBiter Worldwide website. The Panorama Merge Preview dialog now features a boundary warp slider with settings from 0 to 100. As you adjust the setting, Lightroom intelligently warps the panorama boundaries and removes undesired areas of transparency. I created a panorama last summer from 12 images. I was pleased with it, so I decided to see if boundary warp would allow me to improve it. The feature can be used in conjunction with Auto Crop, when you select Auto Crop, Lightroom crops transparent areas at the ends of the combined images. Boundary Warp minimizes or eliminates those transparent sections. You'll see a side-by-side -side comparison that shows the difference. Last summer, the panorama had large areas with no pixels at the top, and I had to crop a lot lower than I really wanted to. With Boundary Warp, those areas were filled in without adversely affecting the rest of the image. As a result, the final crop was considerably higher, and it was able to display more of the sky so that the image is balanced in the way I intended it to be last summer when I created the images. Take a look at my side-by-side -side comparison on the TechBiter Worldwide website. There's an obvious difference. 
I placed a line near the bottom of the pictures to align with a tour bus. That gives us a point of comparison. Last year's image is on the left on the TechBiter Worldwide website, and you'll see how much of the sky I had to crop away to eliminate blank areas. With Boundary Warp, I was able to maintain much more of the sky, and other features introduced into Lightroom between last summer and now allowed me to make the sky more dramatic and to make the other colors more intense. The side-by-side -side images you'll see are actually the extreme right edges of the full panorama. And the full panorama is there, too. You can compare last year's attempt to this year's improved attempt. Merged panoramas generated by Lightroom have also been improved by the addition of metadata that is compatible with the Photoshop Adaptive Wide Angle Filter. The filter can be used to correct apparent distortions caused by using wide-angle lenses. Sometimes this kind of distortion occurs in panoramas, too. The intent is to straighten lines that appear curved in photographs taken with fisheye and other wide-angle lenses, but it also does work with panoramas if they exhibit the problem. The filter detects the camera and lens model and then uses the lens characteristics to straighten the images. Adding information to the resulting panorama makes using the filter easier with the merged images. I included a video on the TechBiter Worldwide website this week from Nicole S. Young. She's a food and stock photographer who lives in Seattle. She's an author with Peach Pit Press, and she shows how the adaptive wide-angle filter works. This isn't a new video, by the way. The adaptive wide-angle filter dates back at least to Creative Suite 6. One thing I can tell you, this summer, I'm probably going to be taking a lot more panoramic images. Network Attached Storage used to be something you'd find in big offices but it's coming to small offices and even to homes. Certainly the specs are impressive for the Synology Disk Station DS216+, Plus, but at $300 or more for a network-attached storage box without any drives, they should be. It's billed as a high-performance, two-bay, network-attached storage server for home and small office use. Performance will depend on the disk drives the user chooses to install, of course, but the hardware inside promises the fastest performance possible from any installed drives. Synology says that the NAS system can do more than just share files across the network. Home users can transcode and stream high-quality video to all of their devices, according to information from the company. So what's inside? You'll find an Intel Celeron processor N3050 with encryption provided by Intel AES New Instructions. The combination is expected to exceed 111 megabytes per second reading and writing. The DS216 Plus can perform on-the-fly H.264 4K to 1080p video transcoding. If you're a video person, you'll know what I just said. If not, well, just ignore it. The company says that this makes it a contender for streaming multimedia files. The NAS device is available right now, but be sure that you budget the cost of two disk drives to put inside the case. Expect to pay another $300 or so for a couple of disk drives such as the 4TB Western Digital Red drives that are intended to be used in NAS devices. 
The device uses the B-Tree file system, which is based on copy-on-write principles that Oracle Corporation designed for use with Linux starting back in 2007. The B-Tree file system can provide self-healing storage because of the way copy-on-write works. It also includes automatic defragmentation, online balancing for better speed, and various other advantages. For more information, you can check out the B-Tree file system article on Wikipedia. There's a link from the TechBiter Worldwide website. No tools are required to install disk drives in this box, and the device allows drives to be swapped without powering the system down. The DS216 Plus includes front LED controls and SATA, USB, and Ethernet connections. If you'd like more information on it, visit the Synology website. There's a link from the TechBiter Worldwide website. circuits claiming excessive drive failures, a law firm representing Christopher Nelson has filed a class action lawsuit against Seagate. Some of the evidence for the trial, if it occurs, will come from the online backup provider Backblaze. The company regularly publishes disk drive statistics and has described a high failure rate for Seagate 3 terabyte drives. The suit was filed on February 1st in U.S. District Court for Northern California. In the suit, Nelson says that he purchased a Seagate Backup Plus drive in 2012, but the drive failed catastrophically and without warning two years later. Nelson was unable to recover data from the drive. Seagate replaced the drive with a refurbished unit. That drive failed less than a year later. In fact, Seagate no longer sells that model. What's interesting here is the decision to use data published by the Backblaze blog. The blog has carried several reports about high failure rates experienced by Seagate drives. As a provider of online backup services, Backblaze uses disk drives in a manner that's a little different from the way drives are used in most homes and offices. Drives in an online backup environment would be expected to fail faster than those in a more forgiving environment. The blog describes failure rates for various brands of hard drives. The 3 terabyte drives in general, regardless of manufacturer, seem to have a higher failure rate than other drives. In a post written late in 2015, Backblaze says that 4 terabyte drives are less likely to fail. The 4 terabyte drives, regardless of their manufacturer, says the post, are performing well. The 2.10% overall failure rate means that over the course of a year, we have to replace only one drive in a storage pod filled with these devices. In other words, the blog post continues, on average, a pod comes down for maintenance about once a year due to drive failure. The math, they point out, 2% is 1 out of 50. There are 45 drives in a pod, so about once a year one of those 45 drives, on average, will fail. Yes, they say the math is approximate, but you get the idea. There's a chart provided by Backblaze on the TechBiter Worldwide website that shows their hard drive failure rate by manufacturer between the years 2013 and 2015. The law firm Hagens Berman has posted information on its website for those who want to be part of that class action suit. The failure rates reported by Backblaze for the Seagate ST3000DM001 are unusual. They were considerably higher than normal, and the distribution was odd, too. 
All but 6% of the data center's Seagate 3-terabyte drives failed. The remainder were taken out of service. Seagate's 3-terabyte drives used just three platters. Most other manufacturers used four or five. Seagate claimed high reliability for those drives, stating that only 1% would be expected to fail in a year. Microsoft is getting serious about Windows 10. They want you to have it, they want you to have it for free, and they won't take no for an answer. Well, actually, they will take no for an answer, but then they'll just ask again and again. Starting this week, Microsoft began pushing Windows 10 to Windows 7 and Windows 8.1 machines. Users still have the final word, but Microsoft will continue to recommend the update. As do I, for that matter. Any computer that can run Windows 7 or 8.1 can run Windows 10. The new version is more secure than any previous version, but you've heard that from me before. Some people just don't like change, and they don't want to give up an operating system that they know for one that doesn't behave quite the same way. Windows 10 has been accepted far faster than Windows 8, and even considerably faster than Windows 7. At least 200 million devices worldwide are now running Windows 10, and even enterprise customers are showing interest, which they didn't show in Windows 8. About three-quarters of Microsoft's enterprise clients are actively testing Windows 10. For those who don't want Windows 10, you can just say no. Microsoft will ask you why. Not literally, but the intent is there with their recommended upgrade. This applies only to consumer versions of Windows, the ones you'll find in homes and in smaller companies. It does not apply to enterprise versions. Microsoft says users can stop the installation by changing the Windows update settings. That keeps the upgrades from installing automatically, but Microsoft will still ask. If you decide to go ahead with the installation and decide you don't like it, or if you accidentally install Windows 10, you can still get back to where you were. Users can roll back to the previous version of Windows any time within a month, specifically 31 days. I thought that was important because we're in February, and February has 29 days this year. Not funny, huh? All right, I'll just keep going. Many Windows 7 and 8.1 computers have been factory configured to install recommended updates automatically. This means the setting called Give Me the Recommended Updates the same way I receive important updates will be selected. That is Microsoft's recommended option. It's also my recommendation. Microsoft says that users with these computers will have the upgrade pushed to their machines starting now. How soon Windows 10 will arrive isn't clear. Microsoft says it's a phased rollout meaning it could show up any time between now and some nebulous future time. Oh, and by the way, if you have a computer that does not meet the hardware requirements for Windows 10, you will not receive the upgrade. That said, Windows 10 will run on just about any modern computer. As I said, if your computer can run Windows 7 or 8.1, it can run Windows 10. 
Computers in large organizations won't receive the free upgrades, and system administrators can set group policy settings on their computers across the network so that the update will not be installed. IT managers also have the option of setting a special registry key that prohibits the upgrade from installing. Home users do not have that option. A new cloud technology company says it'll give the internet a grade once a month to report on overall privacy. Mesobit says it'll monitor data collection, consumer tracking, and security on the top million websites to calculate the Data Transparency Index. The index is intended to provide an objective barometer for five key areas of internet data operations, along with an overall composite score. Data security and privacy are of concern to consumers, corporations, and governments, according to CEO Joseph Glarnow. We see headlines every day about this, he says, but there's shockingly little reliable information regarding what's happening across the global web. Mesobit will scan websites and examine transactions. The company says that its index will reveal how consumers are treated when they visit popular online destinations, specifically what data is collected about them, by which companies, and how website visitors are tracked. A former editorial director of Consumer Reports, Kevin McKean, is an advisor to Mesobit. McKean says the Data Transparency Index should be a wake-up call to the industry that web and mobile sites need much better control over their data collection processes and their partners. The first survey was conducted in December, and it came up with an overall score of 42. That's an important number for anyone who knows anything about technology, particularly those who have read The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Data security scored 74, but only 8% of websites use HTTPS, a secure web protocol that prevents third-party monitoring of data transmissions. TechBiter Worldwide, for example, does not use HTTPS. We collect no personal identification information except on the contact form, Adding security to that form is under consideration. The quantity and type of data collected scored 48. The average data collector gathers about five data elements per website visitor. Visitors tracked across the Internet scored 40 in December. Nearly 12% of sites had at least one piece of third-party technology that engaged in browser fingerprinting, a stealth tracking technology that doesn't use cookies, and is really hard for consumers and website operators to detect. TechBiter Worldwide does not use that technology. Third-party vendors loading additional code into visitors' browsers scored a low 27. One data collector was observed loading 219 other trackers into a single page view. Some third-party code does run on the TechBiter Worldwide website, but none of the code tracks visitors. And the final parameter, visual changes made by third parties to websites, scored an even lower 20. One third party was observed making 165 separate visual changes to its host website. Now, that might be a bogus number, in that numerous sites use external code explicitly designed to control formatting. In other words, visual changes. 
I see nothing particularly nefarious or dangerous about that. If you'd like more details regarding the Mesobit Data Transparency Index, you'll find them on the company's website. There is a link from the TechBiter Worldwide website. And only on the TechBiter Worldwide website you will find spare parts. This week, slow crooks down, and you might be able to keep them out of your computer and off your network. And IBM plans to acquire Columbus-based resource Amarati. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Be sure to check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. See you next week.